Sports are back, so save 40%. Don't miss exclusive in-depth coverage of this unprecedented sports season. Subscribe now and save. Get all access to the Athletics' exclusive in-depth coverage of this sports season. Get unlimited access to breaking news, in-depth stories, and expert analysis on what's sure to be one of the most enthralling seasons in sports history. Don't miss exclusive in-depth coverage of this sports season. Subscribe now and save. Sign up now to see for yourself the creativity, reporting, and storytelling that sets the athletic apart. And if you go to theathletic.com slash here's the catch, you can receive 40% off an annual subscription. Sports are back and you don't want to miss breaking stories on your favorite teams. So go to theathletic.com forward slash here's the catch for 40% off an annual subscription. We hope to see you there. You're listening to Here's the Catch with David Lombardi, Matt Barrows, and Dennis Brown on the Athletic Podcast Network. We're back. The Here's the Catch 49ers podcast. No Dennis Brown today. He'll be back with us next week, and we're going to start doing these on a weekly basis now that things are ramping up. But Matt, how's it going in San Jose now, right? You were on the East Coast for a while, but now you're back in in California. Yeah, I um, had the magic of taking a uh, six-hour flight from Boston recently. And I got to say that they they did a good job. Everybody on that plane was wearing a mask. Everybody was minding their P's and Q's. The the boarding process was good. Uh, the plane was half full. That that always helps. So um, uh, United Airlines and I have a very rocky relationship over over the years, but uh, I have to say they they did a a very nice job uh, with that flight back to San Francisco. I have not been on a plane since March, I believe, since like three or four days before everything really hit the fan, you know, before the day that the NBA uh, suspended their season. That's when I was last on a plane. So that's when, you know, there was already a a lot of buzz and talk about all this. I feel many fewer people were traveling at that time. It was a flight down to Long Beach from SFO, which I think is now discontinued. It was one of those JetBlue flights that uh, got axed after all the economic hardship of the airlines. But I remember the plane being very empty and the airport being really empty. And and I'm sure that the airport wasn't too crowded this time, was it? No, not at all. And, uh, you know, planes will be a a question for us moving forward. Are are we reporters going to be traveling to these games, uh, my guess is probably not, at least in the first half of the season. Maybe this country can get on top of its uh, positive cases, and by the second half of the season, uh, that uh, we'll we'll be allowed to or do it more freely. Uh, But uh, I just don't think that, you know, given the risk and given uh, the fact that I think these NFL teams are going to be wanting a a near-empty press box, too, that uh, that's going to be happening at least uh, early on in this season. Well, baseball is putting the reporters outside, right? I think they're setting up designated areas spread out around the stadium, and obviously that's possible when there aren't fans. So I'm wondering, obviously, you mentioned the travel is unlikely. Yeah, I don't expect any road travel at this point. Who knows? Maybe they're you know that will change, as you said. But at least for the home games, assuming that we'll be at Levi Stadium, Uh, maybe we'll just be in, you know, you'll be in section 112. I'll be in section 115. Maybe we'll get to watch the games from from the vantage point of fans if they really want to avoid, 
uh, people being inside, right? Oh, I've I've uh, I've poo pooed all of the the people complaining about the uh, east side of that stadium all along. Of course, I've never had to sit in one of those seats, so I might be I might be getting my comeuppance uh, on September 13 on uh, you know what, what could be a hot day versus the Cardinals if I'm stuck on the uh, the east side. That would be poetic justice for me if I get stuck uh, with the uh, the uh, the hot seats there on the east side of that stadium. What comes around goes around or what goes around comes around I, I i don't even know how to talk anymore but uh anybody who has ever said anything bad about levi's stadium specifically the sunny side of the stadium they're gonna dig that up they're gonna find some articles back from 2014 and they're gonna make that reporter sit on the sunny side for for the home opener in the afternoon and i don't even remember what the schedule uh is now when is the first afternoon home game for the 49ers because i know that they've tried to minimize those in the schedule by either putting them on the road early or, or giving them primetime games early. Do you remember what that first 1 p.m. game is? I don't, but I want to say it's uh, you know October or later into the season. Uh, let's see. I've got uh, 49ers, uh, Dolphins at 49ers on October 11. That's a one oh five p.m. start, so that that might be the first one. Well, you know the the opener is a one twenty fiver, so that right right there, September thirteenth. Oh wow, yeah, yeah. So the opener is a hot game. I I remember, yeah, writing that they only had one game in September that was like that, but October obviously in the Bay Area is, uh, you know, in the city of San Francisco, October is summer. I know that it might be a little bit more moderate in the South Bay and San Jose, but October and November, I know that's been an effort with the NFL scheduling office to get, you know, those afternoon games off the schedule. But the 49ers will have a couple of them, including that opener, as you said, against the Cardinals on September 13th, assuming that everything proceeds according to schedule. And, you know, why don't we uh, just really briefly summarize and talk about that schedule because uh, things are still being finalized as we speak, but it does seem that the NFL and the NFL PA, that means the owners and the Players Association, have come to a general agreement. They're still uh, dotting the I's and crossing the T's right now, but it's obviously going to be an amended training camp with fewer players. By August 16th, teams have to cut down to 80 instead of the usual 90 players this year, and there's a longer ramp-up period. But assuming that this tentative schedule is adhered to, Matt, the league should be on track to start by that September 13th date. Maybe things will be a little bit sloppier than usual because there'll only be eight padded practices and no preseason games. But the tentative schedule does have the 49ers and the league on a general track to start on time. Yeah, and I'm not sure if you were the one that brought this up on Twitter, but it was a good point, whoever did, that uh, you know a team like the 49ers that you know um, abounds with guys, George Kittle, uh, Brandon Ayuk, maybe Debo Samuel, etc., who uh, are great at breaking tackles. You got to think that the the tackling is going to be very shoddy to to begin the season, and uh, maybe a a team that has a lot of uh, yak guys, um, tackle breakers like the Forty ers would would excel in that situation. So, um, you know, I, I feel like uh, of all the teams, the the Forty ers are uh, very well equipped. Um, obviously, no team is uh, is immune to getting a, a coronavirus outbreak. I'm not suggesting that, but 
uh, compared to the other 31 teams, the 49ers are in a good spot just in terms of their facilities, in terms of who's in the building, the fact that there's really good continuity from from last year uh, on the roster. They're not starting anew. They're not having a huge influx of uh, of new players. So, um, you know, an off season, while important to them, isn't as important to a team that's you know got a new coaching staff or um, had a uh, a ten man draft class. The 49ers had five. So, um, you know, this is this is the season. This would have been the season for the 49ers without coronavirus. Um, but uh, it seems like they, of all the teams, can um, should be able to withstand it uh, pretty well and um, hit the ground running. Yeah, I think, Matt, you're exactly right. I think there's a list of attributes that the team needs to have to be best insulated against uh, you know this season because this season is going to be so unusual and there are going to be so many new types of challenges. And I think the 49ers check all the boxes. And I think one of the, the attributes that you listed is, is the most important one, and that's continuity. Because you have to realize that these teams did not have any organized work throughout the entire offseason, which is highly unusual. The last time that we saw you know that dynamic was back during the lockout back in uh, 2011, before that season. So the 49ers are coming off of a Super Bowl run in which, A, they got more practice than everybody but one team, right? They and the Chiefs got two extra weeks of practice, and the 49ers and the other playoff teams got several more weeks of practice in than the teams who did not qualify for the playoffs in the NFL. So first off, when teams aren't you know holding organized activities in April, May, and June— I think that's very significant because if the roster stays intact and the 49ers roster has, for the most part, stayed intact, it's those extra practices, those most recent practices that they got in the run-up to the Super Bowl that are the freshest in their minds. They didn't get any other work besides the non-organized stuff, which was timing work in Nashville and at San Jose State and with the offense. They didn't get any other work in. So for, from that point, from, from the point of view of continuity, I think the 49ers are a, a step ahead of the game. And, and I know their coaching staff knows that. I've talked to some people on the staff who, who have really valued the practices that they got in the Super Bowl or in the lead up to the Super Bowl uh, even more. They valued them even more now that this whole offseason has happened. So I think between the continuity, between the fact that the roster and offensive weapons are built to to break tackles, if you look at Jawan Jennings and, and Jalen Hurd, I think the 49ers are in as good a position as can be. And of course, Everything I think is going to rely this off this season once the season starts on depth, and we already knew that the 49ers had a deep roster thanks to the work that uh, Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch have done over the past three years. Yeah, and uh, we're going to have a 16-man practice squad, and you think, oh, uh, who cares about the practice squad? Well, you know, the, the 49ers have dipped heavily into their practice squad in, in recent years, and. They've shown a knack for being able to to find guys, undrafted guys, who are valuable. I mean, look at what Daniel Brunskill and Ross Dwelly did early last season. Um, uh, Emmanuel Mosley was uh, was undrafted. Um, you know, it's it's very possible, maybe even likely, that you're you're dipping heavily into that practice squad, which are composed of those types of guys, and and the 49ers and. You know, this might be a, a nice bridge to what we're going to talk about next, but 
The 49ers have that nice symbiotic uh, relationship between the personnel department run by John Lynch and the coaching staff run by Kyle Shanahan that um, they were able to withstand a, a flurry of, of injuries last year. And, uh, you know, that, that could be the, the scenario that all these teams are looking at this year. You, you all of a sudden have three guys along your offensive line that need to be replaced uh, from one week to another or the defensive line or, or any uh, position group. That, that's where a, uh, an outbreak uh, is, is most likely to hit. Those are the guys that spend the most time together. The, the DBs spend time together. Uh, they meet together, et cetera, et cetera. They're, they're huddling together. Uh, so, um, that's, that's where this, uh, uh, practice squad is going to come into play and where, you know, the 49ers ability to identify players, um, you know, the Justin schools, the Brun skills, the, uh, the Ben Garlands, um, is really going to come to bear this season. And as you mentioned, that is indeed a perfect segue Thank you. Uh, the, the morning that we're, <laughs> the morning of of this recording, I think this is going to come out on Thursday. But the morning of this recording, the 49ers re-signed John Lynch, five year extension for John Lynch. Earlier this off season, Coach Kyle Shanahan got a six year extension, and that just goes to show you that the 49ers are intent on keeping the two main pieces of their brain trust together and you know together is the operative word here because uh, I came aboard covering this team in 2017 so that was the first year for Shanahan and Lynch but I followed the 49ers closely and you covered the team very closely through so many different coaching and GM combinations before that with the most recent one probably being the most dysfunctional, right? With Trent Baalke at GM and just a rotating parade of coaches going through the head coaching spot. I mean, it got so bad that the 49ers had a highly successful coach when you look at the you know win-loss record in Jim Harbaugh, but they ran him out of the building and then they couldn't, you know, settle on a coach through Jim Tom Sula and then Chip Kelly. And, you know, the, the on-field results were predictably disastrous. The team went two and 14 in 2016. And that's when Jed York had had enough. He decided that he needed to completely clean house and bring in two new guys for to run the coaching department and to, to run the management team, Shanahan and Lynch, and he needed those two guys to work together. He, he, he went nuclear with it. He, he cleaned out the building and he brought in the new brain trust and boy, has it paid off. And the most recent indication of how much it's paid off is, is this John Lynch contract extension. Yeah, that was paramount for, for Jed York. He had uh, lived through or witnessed uh, the bulky slash Harbaugh years and he basically wanted the opposite relationship. Um, and it, it's funny, I, I wrote about this on, uh, on Wednesday um, th- there was an assumption from from York and from the 49ers and from a lot of people, I think, that uh, you know, even though they were first time first timers in their uh, re- respective jobs, that uh, John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan went back a long time. Like th- these are, these are long time chums. They they talk football for years and years and years. That wasn't the case. Um, you know, Lynch and Shanahan knew each other from. Lynch being part of the uh, Fox Sports broadcast crew, and he would come in, I don't know, maybe once, maybe twice a year and have a production meeting that involved Shanahan, and that was the extent of their interaction. 
but uh, Lynch really admired Shanahan. And, and after one of the, the Falcons' playoff wins, I think it was the divisional win over the Seahawks, he called him and he, and he said, you know, congratulations on your game. How's your the, the head coaching s- search going? Um, because everyone knew at that point that the 49ers and some other teams were interested in hiring him to be the head coach. And Shanahan said, oh, it's going great. Uh, I'm zeroing in on the 49ers. The only issue is that I haven't been able to kind of settle on a GM. Um, you know, none of these relationships are, are really working. There's no really good fit. And uh, they kind of left it at that. And uh, Lynch was just bothered by it. Uh, he couldn't sleep. And it finally dawned on him that, you know, that's what he wanted to do. And that's when he broached this uh, prospective, um, you know, duo uh, of him being uh, Shanahan's GM. And it really kind of came out of the blue. Uh, it surprised himself even. And, and um, uh, it, it's funny because you think that they have this long-term relationship. They don't. But it's because that chemistry is so instant and it's so apparent to everybody. And that's what this basically this whole team is built on, the, the, the chemistry, the interaction uh, between Lynch and Shanahan. And, um, you know, York is smart enough to recognize a really good thing when he's got it. And uh, that's why these two guys are signed through, I think it's 2024 now. Uh, the next five years. Well, I think a great on-field comparison of that kind of quick chemistry. Go back to week nine, 49ers Cardinals, right? Thursday night football. You had Emmanuel Sanders playing just his second game with the team. Jimmy yeah. Garoppolo, quarterback. And they had that third and long where Garoppolo threw the the deep out pattern to Sanders and he threw it before Sanders even broke. And the ball was there just right on the money. One of the prettiest throws that we, I think, saw in the whole league all season. That that was awesome. You know, when you just look at the the cohesion there, it was enough, I mean, to write entire articles about that one throw, not just because of the physical elements at play, but the fact that they had that kind of cohesion after only one and a half games together. And uh, that just goes to show you that you don't have to know somebody forever, but if you, you know, bring the right people into the building, both in the front office and in the locker room for for play on the field, uh, if those people get along, then you can see results that are greater than than the sum of their parts, right? That That's what building a team is all about. So I think we, we've seen it, obviously, between Shanahan and Lynch, and we saw it between uh, Jimmy Garoppolo and many of his receivers, not just Emmanuel Sanders last season. Obviously, they're going to have to find it uh, between Jimmy Garoppolo and Brandon Ayuk moving forward, between Garoppolo and Jalen Hurd moving forward, Jawan Jennings, you know, because Emmanuel Sanders is now with the New Orleans Saints. So that's the challenge of this 49ers offseason is maintaining that, uh, you know, same cohesion that we see throughout the whole organization that we uh, really saw propel that team to the Super Bowl last season. Now you have to maintain it even with some new faces in 2020. And that's where the continuity aspect comes in. And I guess, you know, a huge part of continuity because he impacts so much of what the 49ers do on the field, both in the catching, pass catching and the blocking game is George Kittle. And that's the big question now with John Lynch's contract taken care of, with Raheem Mostert's contract taken care of. Uh, the big question is George Kittle. When will his contract be taken care of? Well, I think the next date that you point to, and we should note that all the veterans were supposed to come in on, on Tuesday and get their initial COVID test, and George Kittle was, was part of that. So there's no holdout this year, and, and I think that uh, 
the the CBA was written in such a way that the, the latest uh, collective bargaining agreement was written in such a way that um, you know th- those types of holdouts are going to be few and far between. Um, I forget who was explaining it the other day, but uh, if you hold out, you risk uh, um, an accrued season, uh, which is you know obviously valuable for all these guys because they want to eventually become. Uh, free agents, and you need a certain amount of accrued seasons to do that. So, uh, Kittle is uh, will be in the building if he passes all of his COVID tests. And then the next date that comes up is is August twelfth. That's when uh, light practices begin. Uh, and the the next date after that is August seventeenth, which is when the the pads finally go on. So, uh, I would imagine that those are sort of the uh, the dates that. Uh, the 49ers and, and Kittle's representatives have circled now. Um, you know, obviously the risk from Kittle's point of view is that you practice and you get an injury and you're not covered. You're not compensated the way that you should be at this point. So uh, I'm not sure whether that's going to be um, an impetus for getting stuff done, but that's the next time I would think that uh, a deal gets done right before those practices start up. You know, Brett Tesler, who's Raheem Mostert's agent, was on KMBR earlier this week and he brought up an interesting point. Now, I'm not 100% sure. I'm going to have to go and read the details of the CBA, so I'm not 100% sure if this applies to players who are currently on their rookie contracts. But in the case of Raheem Mostert, had Mostert decided to hold out, Tesler said that he would have been fined $50,000 a day and that under the new CBA, there's no way for the team to forgive the fines. In the past, after everything had been smoothed out, the team could come back and say, okay, we forgive the fines. It's, it's fine that you missed four or five days of training camp. Um, you, you, know, you don't have to pay that. But now it is a blanket rule across the NFL that at least players who are, you know, have signed second contracts, as you know, Mostert was already uh, not on his rookie contract anymore, if they hold out, they are automatically fined $50,000 a day. So it's become much less appealing to hold out this offseason. And if that applies to players on rookie deals as well, um, then you know you, you can forget about holdouts, I think. $50,000 a day is, is a lot of money for anybody, especially guys who are still on rookie deals. And I think that's one of the main you know points that you brought up here with, with Kittle's contract. He's only set to make... million this year, which is far less than he will make when he signs his long-term extension. So it becomes a matter of, is he willing to risk tens of millions of dollars playing at a $2.1 million salary this year? Because you never know when a career-ending injury can happen. It's a a violent sport. So just for the sake of, you know, long-term security, peace of mind, uh, I, you know, if I'm George Kittle, I want to make sure I start this season playing at a contract that's worth more than $2.1 million since my personal worth would be at least 6x that. Yeah, and I think his uh, his leverage is that it's a bad look not getting him done. Everybody recognizes his value to the team. Everybody recognizes that he's the best tight end in the league. And you just uh, you know, re-upped uh, Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch, uh, but you can't do it for the guy who's you know literally putting his uh, his health at stake um, every year. You know, especially this year, uh, a, a COVID nineteen uh, type season. So uh, that's that's the you know th- there would be a lot written if uh, if George Kittle doesn't have his deal done by the time they start practices and. Um, 
you know, it, it's, uh, it's justified. Um, he throws his body around like nobody else. That's what makes him so great. He needs to be covered for that. He needs to be rewarded for that, um, what he did in the past two seasons, but also covered for what's coming, you know, hopefully for the next five, six, seven, eight, nine seasons uh, or so. I don't think the contract's going to be that long, but he needs his future taken care of. And uh, I think that's a very legitimate argument that he and his agent are going to be making. I don't I don't think there's any question that the 49ers want to, to make him the highest paid uh, tight end in, in all the land. Uh, the question is the number. And, um, you know, you and I have discussed this at length. Uh, uh, obviously, the, the Kittle and uh, Jack Becta, his agent, want that number to be close to 20. And uh, I think the 49ers want that number to be closer uh, to, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 or so. So that's, uh, that's where they are, uh, to, you know, put a very broad brush on it at this point. Yeah. The floor is 10, right? That's what the franchise tag average would be for, for three years. If you, the 49ers just tagged him twice, George Kittle would make an average of $10 million per year. The ceiling is the top wide receiver contract. That's Julio Jones, $22 million. 49ers have the... the okay, so, so you have polar opposite magnets, right? You have a magnet at 10. You have a magnet at 22. The problem for Kittle is that the magnet at 10 is stronger because Kittle is classified as a tight end, not as a wide receiver. So any closer that the 49ers get to 22 than to 10. So anything above 15 or 16 would require some goodwill on the 49ers part, which I absolutely believe that George Kittle deserves because of the reasons that you outlined, because of the way that he's putting his body on the line, physical player. I mean, you, you, you've got to have some kind of security to play a sport that, that is this dangerous at such a high level. And based on what John Lynch said yesterday, um, I think it really confirmed a lot of what, what we were speculating or have been speculating for the past year or so, I think the 49ers were ready to extend a lot of that goodwill and put Kittle into a really high pay bracket, maybe something as high as $16 million a year, uh, until the pandemic hit. Because, you know, the 49ers were counting on the current salary cap, which is $198.2 million. John Lynch said it himself. They were counting on the salary cap to increase to 215 to 220 million dollars which would have been a huge jump in the 2021 season. Well, look now. The salary cap may go as low as 175 million dollars in 2021 because of this whole lack of revenue because there's not going to be any fans at these games. So, that's a 45 million dollar drop that the 49ers were not anticipating. And over the past few months, they were flying blind. They didn't know what the salary cap would be. So John Lynch said it yesterday. He said that now we actually have that floor. We have that number. It's not going to go any lower than $175 million. That means that we could start moving forward on finding that appropriate number for George Kittle now that we can fit into the worst case possible salary cap. Because they, let's be honest, the 49ers were not able to extend a goodwill contract offer to George Kittle paying him 16 or 17 million a year when they didn't know what the cap was going to be. 
and they probably still aren't in that position now that the cap might be a lot lower, but at least they know what that number is. So maybe now they can find that happy spot between 13 and 14 and in in good faith offer that to George Kittle. Well, right. It, it allows them to know what the structure should be for something like that. Let, let, let's talk about next year's cap because it, it's uh, it's, it's it's a, a big deal. Um, as you noted, the floor is going to be 175. Maybe it's higher than that. Maybe the revenues are better this year than uh, what, uh, what what teams are expecting at this point. Um, I was looking at uh, uh, Spotrack or Spotrack. I, I don't know how you say it. They're the, uh, the salary cap uh, gurus, and they have the 49ers at uh, 171 for next season, and that's not with any of the uh, – the, the the big ticket free agents that they need to re-sign, you know, Trent Williams, Richard Sherman, Kyle Juszczyk, uh George Kittle's deal isn't isn't part of that, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I I thought that you know 171 when you when you're looking at uh, the the league as a whole uh, was sort of right in the right in the middle there. Um, you know they they can create some room by. Uh, shedding some other big salaries. Um, just wondering, uh, obviously you can't uh, go item by item on a podcast like this, but what are your sort of your, your big picture takeaways about uh, a 175 million cap, if that's the number next year, and uh, how the 49ers are situated to handle that? Yes, yeah, so they have 51 players in a contract right now for 2021, and they are at that 170, 171 million figure. So they're they're looking at about five million of cap space. That could increase if they don't finish the Kittle extension because they have eleven point five million this year, and anything you don't use this year will will carry over to next year. And you know that's an important consideration right now because we're at the point now where every single million is going to matter. If the cap had skyrocketed up to two hundred twenty million dollars, well, then all of a sudden you're looking at breathing room. Now the 49ers have no breathing room. And to be able to keep their roster at a top-tier level, um, it's going to be really challenging. So you look back at what the 49ers did in 1993, 1994, you know, back when the salary cap was new, but they wanted to keep the team competitive and they wanted to keep, you know, fit in one at least one more Super Bowl run, which they did at the end of the 1994 season. They brought in a lot of players. You know, Carmen Policy told me this, uh, talking to him about the salary cap. They they would literally, you know, pull players off the practice field, bringing them in to to give them restructured deals. They'd be in their cleats, in their uniforms, you know, staining up the the, the GM's office with with uh, the grass and all that. And they would, uh, you know, finalize their contract extensions right then and there to be able to give them, you know, a new signing bonus and prorate the cap hit. To further years, when when uh, you, the 49ers obviously that that ended up uh, taking the 49ers to to a bad place several years down the line when they entered cap hell, but they bought them more contention time in the interim. So the 49ers may have to execute a couple tricks like that. I don't think they want to do it on a mass scale. I don't think they want to restructure these deals, uh, you know, in a way that makes this whole thing unsustainable in three or four years. But they also do have to operate within the realization that they are in a championship window right now. And no matter who you are, it, I guess the Patriots really shed, uh, you know, disproved this, but I think they're the exception rather than the rule. 
no matter who you are, that 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 championship window is is not going to last forever. Um, so I think that the 49ers may have to make a couple moves that might, you know, threaten their spending in 2022-2023 to make sure that they stay at the top of the league in 2021-2022. And you do those moves while holding your breath, right? You hope that the cap does start to increase, that revenues do recover in the NFL, and then maybe you skate out of this completely scot-free at the end. But I think it will require making a couple of restructuring risks. And, uh, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo could be a restructure. The 49ers do push that cap hit further down the road. Um, and Jimmy Garoppolo can reward you by playing at an all pro level. We'll see if he, he makes that next step in his improvement. So it's going to be things like that. The 49ers are going to have to pick and choose which players they really like. You extend them, allow that cap hit to be amortized, you know, further down the road and then just, Cross your fingers, pray, hope, do whatever you need to to make sure that player rewards you doesn't start failing on the field because then that would be a huge weight on your salary cap moving forward. If you're paying this guy all this money, you're you're committed to him and, and he's not producing. It's entirely premature to say how they might create some room. Um, I think that's going to be largely dictated by who plays well and who's injured and things like that in the 2020 season. But uh, let's let's do it anyway. Um, I mean, we've we've identified Quan Alexander. I think he's got a top three salary in terms of the salary cap hit next year, as as somebody that the that that could uh, be excised, uh, especially considering how well Dre Greenlaw played last season. Uh, D Ford did not play up to his deal. That was largely due to to injuries last year. Um, and I also wonder about Trent Williams. Um, he's, uh, you know, perhaps the top left tackle in the league, somebody that you would want protecting Jimmy Garoppolo's blind side. Uh, but, uh, he's going to be very, very pricey to, to reshine in the off season. And, uh, you know, unlike some other positions, the 49ers do have some depth and it's not certainly not Trent Williams, uh, level or caliber depth at offensive tackle, but they do have bodies there. And I just, I just wondering, I'm just speculating inside my own head, uh, uh, asking myself this question, whether he could be one of the guys that sort of sacrificed if, you know, worst case scenario, you are looking at a $175 million cap next season. That's a great example because when you look at the $175 million cap and then you look at the 49ers liabilities for 2021 so far, which are, you know, near that $170 million mark, Trent Williams is not one of those liabilities. He's only signed through 2020. So immediately, if you're talking about re-signing Trent Williams, you are now, assuming he's making $12 million, right, in 2021, you are now looking at the 49ers being $7 million over a 2021 cap if it's at $175 million. So that's a great illustration to show you that trade-offs are going to have to be made if the cap does indeed fall that low. And the trade-off in this case would be either you sign Trent Williams, enjoy an, an elite left tackle, uh, but with that you would have to you know cut weight elsewhere. And I think Quan Alexander is probably a, a prime candidate. His cap hit has set the skyrocket to $16.5 million. Why is it going to be that high? Well, it, this is related to what I was just saying. The 49ers restructured Quan Alexander's contract uh, before this pandemic hit. 
So they restructured his contract under the impression that the cap was going to rise to about $220 million. They also did the same with Weston Richburg's contract. And by restructuring, what they did is they kicked the can down the road. They wanted to open up more space in 2020 so that they could pay guys like George Kittle. And then they figured they'd be okay in 2021, 2022, paying everybody all that money because the cap would go up. But now that, you know, this is like a cold bucket of water to the face for the 49ers. Cap maybe $45 million lower than they expected. And they're sitting there staring at a $16.6 million cap hit for Quan Alexander in 2021, which is not ideal by any stretch of the imagination. So with Alexander, they can cut him. They can save over $6 million, which might be what they have to do to keep a guy like Trent Williams in 2021. But, uh, you know, it's, it would still be hard to swallow be- because of the restructure. They'd be eating $10.4 million in dead money. So ultimately, they would save some money. They would save the six, right? So that's all you can look at. Otherwise, you're, you know, buying into sunk cost fallacy, which you should never do. But still, over $10 million in dead money for, for a linebacker who you just restructured, that just goes to illustrate you know how this is putting the 49ers into a bit of a bind really through no fault of their own they they were just making these restructures doing these deals based on the assumption the cap would continue increasing according to trend and i think this pandemic and the economic uh, impacts of it caught everybody blindsided oh sure yeah you can't fault them for you know not anticipating a global pandemic um but uh yeah i i think some of the answers will be uh, you know, obviously answered by how well the players we've been discussing um, perform in, in 2020 and, and also how well their backups or potential backups perform. Um, you know, uh, Richard Sherman is another uh, player who is up for a, a new contract. He's a he's a free agent in March. Uh, you know, the difference between Sherman and Trent Williams might be that you know, like I said, the 49ers have been using a lot of capital, draft capital, uh, on the offensive line, on offensive tackle uh, in, in recent years. They haven't done that at cornerback. There's no obvious replacements for a Richard Sherman at that position. Uh, so if it's not Richard Sherman, I, I would think that they have to spend a, a lot of money on another veteran cornerback to, to hold down one of those spots just because – um, there haven't been a lot of investments at that position. Akella Witherspoon, a third rounder in 2017, is the highest pick that uh, Lynch and Shanahan have used at um, at either safety or cornerback. Well, I, I guess that's not right. Tar- Tarverius Moore also was a uh, was a third rounder. Uh, but my point is that uh, let's say it, it is Trent Williams that they decide to to be the, the sacrifice. Um, in that scenario, then maybe you move Mike McGlinchey over to left tackle in 2021, and you've got um, Colton McKivitz, you've got Daniel Brunskill, you've got Justin School, maybe you've got Sean Coleman, although he's also a, uh, a free agent in March. You have at least some candidates uh, for those two tackle spots, whereas you don't have a lot of candidates at uh, at cornerback. Yeah, well, this is going to be so fascinating on so many philosophical levels. First of all, uh, you know, offensive line, which you're mentioning, we saw Daniel Brunskill play really well there in spot duty at left tackle, really defying, uh, you know, expectations. He's not prototypical tackle size. He's built more like a guard. Um, you know, as he's not this monster that that Trent Williams is, but. 
he is really athletic. He was a tight end at San Diego State, so that seemed to fit into Kyle Shanahan's system. And in many ways, Kyle Shanahan's system is, you know, bucking so many trends of that we've considered, you know, conventional for so long in football. And one of those may be that, you know, maybe you can get away with a smaller tackle as long as he's really athletic because that's how this works. The outside zone is based on a, a lot of movement. So if that happens, maybe the 49ers do buy themselves a, a few extra years and all it will take probably here is a couple to absorb all these smaller salary caps and, and you can get away with a left tackle who's not paid nearly as much money as a Trent Williams. Of course, for this one year, the 49ers are more than happy to have a guy like Trent Williams, who is still that massive size, but moves like a smaller guy. You have the best of both worlds, but you're not necessarily going to be able to afford that in 2021. So maybe through you know a way like that, the 49ers can get creative, cut costs, maintain effectiveness on the offensive line. And that leads me into a related thought in the secondary, when we talk about where is the 49ers secondary heading, we talk about why um, they didn't, you know, try harder to trade for uh, Jamal Adams, the the star safety who just ended up uh, at Seattle with, with the, the great cost. You know, they spent a couple first round picks and more for him. It, it, it we'll find out this next offseason just how much capital, financial and draft capital, the 49ers are willing to spend on the secondary. But Matt, every single clue that we've gotten so far from John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan, and Lynch went out and said it, I think, very directly the other day, is, is that the 49ers are intent on spending big on the defensive line to make the pass rush not good. They want to make sure the pass rush is elite. They're willing to spend whatever it takes in terms of draft picks and money on that position, and they think that the carryover effect will allow them to build an effective secondary without spending a whole ton of money on the back end. And uh, it will, I think that's going to be the strategy moving forward. I think that's why Jamal Adams was never a serious contender to be, to be a part of the 49ers this year. And you're absolutely right with deals for Richard Sherman, Kwan Williams all expiring, Jaquaski Tart all expiring this offseason. I think we're about to have a, a moment of truth for the 49ers. We'll see if they really mean that, A. And B, we'll see if that's an effective strategy. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, uh, I was just talking about the initial bromance that uh, Shanahan and, and Lynch had when, when Shanahan was still Atlanta's offensive coordinator. W one of their first conversations they had was, uh, how do you build a team? And uh, they both, um, you know, they saw eye to eye on everything. And one of the things that they saw eye to eye on was the defense and that it, it trickles backward from the defensive line. Even Lynch, an ex-safety, uh, realized that uh, the key, you know, to building that unit is to bulk up that defensive line as best as possible, and then everything else will sort of take care of itself. Now, having said that, uh, I still think that you need to have, um, you know, especially with, uh, you know, perhaps um, some other young spots in the secondary, you need to have at least one veteran cornerback back there. Um, you know, you know, even a great pass rush uh, is still allowing a, a, a Drew Brees, I don't know, 2.5 seconds to throw. And that's, you know, that, that's great from the d defense's point of view. But 2.5 seconds, if you've got lousy cornerbacks or inexperienced cornerbacks, is an eternity for somebody like Brees or Aaron Rodgers or Russell Wilson, uh, etc. So, um, to me, that's that's one. I, I think it probably goes in, in order of importance. 
you 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 take care of one of those cornerback spots, and and maybe it's by re-upping uh, Sherman, and then you know then you're looking at strong safety and uh, that nickel spot. And Kwan Williams is one of the best in the league. Uh, the 49ers really like Tart as well. So uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. It's going to be interesting to see what the composition of those uh, those top five defensive back positions are at this point next year. Well, it's fascinating in the larger picture because obviously Seattle and you look at another example, the New England Patriots and Bill Belichick have a a totally opposite philosophy from what the 49ers have demonstrated so far. No team in football spends more money on its secondary than the New England Patriots, and you'll hardly ever see those guys re-sign a a defensive lineman for big money. I mean, Trey Flowers was their biggest name recently. They let him sign with the Lions the other year. Um, They keep on, you know, they're doing the opposite of what we think the 49ers may do, right? They they just constantly refill that defensive line with cheaper guys, with draftees, and then when it's time to move to the second contract, they'll let those guys go, and, and they make sure that they use that money on the secondary. So I think New England's budget for the secondary is something like, $50.2 $50.2 million this year, the 49ers. Uh, 49ers haven't been you know, cheap on the secondary. They've re-signed Jimmy Ward. Sherman costs money as well. Um, but still, their price tag is only like $33 million. So that's significantly lower than New England's, and we'll see if it goes up or down when all these contracts are up after next season. And then you look at Seattle. Well, I mean, they just provided us a great example of investing heavily in the secondary. They give up two first-round picks and a third-rounder, for Jamal Adams, who you know is a, a great player, he can blitz too from the strong safety position. Uh, I think that they're hoping that he can cover George Kittle uh, from that strong safety position. But they spend just a whole ton of draft capital. I mean, almost Rams-like amount of draft capital, right? Uh, during a time when I feel the draft capital is going to be more valuable than ever. If the salary cap is lower, you build a team economically through the draft. And that's before Jamal Adams even gets paid by the Seahawks. So assuming they extend him, which they may almost be compelled to do now after spending all all those draft picks, their spending is going to skyrocket in the secondary. While uh, you know, it seems they've let Jadavian Clowney walk, so th- they they have a lot less experience on the defensive line, which just shows that Pete Carroll, like Bill Belichick, is clearly prioritizing the secondary. While the 49ers, another good team in football, is clearly doing the opposite. And as you said, that might change. We'll see. This is going to be a great year to learn. But it is fascinating to see the very differing approaches to team building that we're seeing among some of the good teams in football right now. Yeah, it is. And you look at sustained success and the the Patriots and the Seahawks are are at the top of the heap. Now, both of them have excellent quarterbacks, which is probably the, the biggest reason for that sustained success. But uh, they both have defensive-minded head coaches who who see it that way. So it, it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, maybe both philosophies are right if you've got the right personnel. Uh, I think one of the things uh, for the 49ers is that uh, it's it's maybe easier to to scout defensive linemen than it is uh, defensive backs. Uh, you know, there, there seem to be more misses. in the, in the secondary early on at at cornerback uh, in, in the first round. Uh, so that may be part of their philosophy as well, but, uh, you know, watching these, uh, these teams, 
Um, it uh, it'll be fun to watch how they uh, evolve, especially the Seahawks and the and the Forty Nine ers defenses over the next few years. Uh, I'll say this much. Uh, and I think that the truth always does lie somewhere in between. And I, I think it's a to each his own kind of thing. And, you know, as you mentioned, some teams are going to be more comfortable with one strategy uh, and, and others are going to go in a different direction. But I, I think it's the 49ers, right? They, they, they're modeling this defense around what Seattle did so well in early in the last decade. Richard Sherman was part of both defenses and remember, that Seahawks defense, they did not become historically good. They did not become a Super Bowl-caliber defense until they added two top-end defensive linemen. They made the surge from 2012 to 2013 when they added Michael Bennett and Cliff Averill. And so, you know, even if you say that Pete Carroll has gone full all-DB mode now, uh, it's important to remember that he saw the greatest success of his career with an elite defensive line in Seattle in 2013. And the 49ers are obviously, you know, following that blueprint. They, they've got Robert Sala running the defense. He was in Seattle back then. I mentioned Sherman, and I really think that, the, that they're, that they're going to stay heavy on these defensive linemen. They're obviously contractually committed to them. Um, but, but I do think that a lot of what you're saying is true, that you have to have a little bit of a balance of both. And that's what the 49ers had last year. That's why they re-upped Jimmy Ward. And we'll see uh, wh- where they go with guys like Sherman moving forward. But it, it's, it's certainly uh, fascinating. And, and the crunch of the salary cap is just going to make all these decisions all the more important. They're going to be magnified moving forward. What are you most looking forward to in camp, Matt? Is there a certain player that, that you want to watch? Or are you going to be watching position groups more generally like we're talking about now to see how those will evolve here into 2020? I'm really looking forward to the, the Trent Williams-Nick Bosa matchup when pads go on. I think that's going to be fun for both guys. Remember, Bosa gave Joe Staley a, a longtime veteran, all that he could handle right off the bat. Uh, and, uh, you know, Trent Williams didn't play last year. So I, I, if, if I'm Trent Williams, I am really looking forward to that because that's going to get me uh, regular season sharp uh, going against uh, Nick Bosa, who, you know, is probably better um, heading into his, uh, his second year than he was last year. Uh, in, in terms of uh, individuals, uh, Brandon Ayuk, um, you know, he's – He's pivotal now. I mean, we, we heard John Lynch, and, and Lynch was was hesitant to put any sort of firm timeline on Debo Samuel's foot injury, but <clears throat> it was clear that he was hedging toward Samuel missing a, a couple of games at the beginning of the season, and that's big. Um, we just talked about Emmanuel Sanders for a while. He's not there. Uh, the, the number two uh, receiver at the end of the season, Debo Samuel, probably isn't going to be in the, in the lineup for the Cardinals game. Um, so who steps up at, uh, at, at receiver? I mean, it's, it's already difficult for a rookie to do that. A rookie in a coronavirus curtailed uh, offseason, it's going to be even harder. So um, how is he going to perform? And who else? Kendrick Bourne, he's going to step up. We, we know he's got uh, the ability to do that. Uh, but uh, that position group to me is going to be really interesting to watch in the uh, albeit abbreviated time that we will uh, in the second half of August. You know, I'm a big Jawan Jennings guy. I just feel when I watch that film, 
it goes back to a point that you brought up earlier in, in the show that a yak guy, a guy that could be, you know, I call it a bar fight. Whenever you have one of those games where it's a little sloppy, but guys are breaking tackles in, in the open field and you're not, you know, quiet at that perfectly refined level of football yet. Uh, I think we're going to see our share of bar fights early in the season. And I think Jawan Jennings is who you want on your team in, in a bar fight. Uh, you know, I think that everybody's making this huge deal about guys not, you know, rookies especially not being able to pick up the playbook in time this year. But for the reasons that we outlined, you know, the tackling, the the fact that we're going to have an unprecedented low number of padded practices, uh, I think that that some of those, you know, really finesse intricacies of playbook knowledge, uh, they won't go out the window, but I think there'll be a little less weight on them. So a, a guy like Jawan Jennings, I think, may be able to make up some ground uh, just by running over tacklers who in the league have gotten smaller over the past few years as defenses have have downsized. So that, that that's my you know one prediction for training camp. I think he emerges from seventh round draft pick status to make the team and become a contributor earlier than people are expecting. Um, other than that, boy, um, it's going to be interesting. It, it it's it really is this year. The 49ers coming off a Super Bowl run with a roster that has some tweaks to it that are really intriguing. We're waiting to see how these rookies do, but boy, um, it, there's just going to be so many twists and turns, I feel, waiting in this season. And as we said earlier, too, that depth is is going to be tested this year, probably to a greater extent than it was in 2019. All right, Matt. Well, uh, I guess, when do I see you? Uh, will I see you from a distance uh, across the field at training camp, maybe uh, midway through August, or do you, I guess we're just kind of uh, guessing at this point, but I'm, I think that's the next milestone, right? I'll be the guy in the mask uh, on, on August 12th. Um, yeah, we probably won't be allowed within six feet of one another, and certainly not within six feet of any of the players, so um, that's probably going to be our new reality for a while. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Anyway, well, you won't see us, but you'll hear us on this podcast starting now on a weekly basis. And Dennis Brown will be back with us next week. So be sure to tune in to the Here's the Catch podcast. So thank you to my partner, Matt Barrows. This is David Lombardi signing off. We'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs>